Take your Bibles this morning, all those that are here in person and watching online, to the book of Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 27, our last chapter in Leviticus, and our last sermon in Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 27. It would seem that this chapter doesn't quite fit. We would read Leviticus, provided that we actually read Leviticus, and we would look at chapter 26 and say that's a nice ending, that's clean, that's the way it should have ended. After all that has been said about the sacrifices and the feast days and all of the instructions for the priests and for the people, God seemingly ends the book by saying, and if you keep my commandments, these are the blessings for you. If you disobey my commandments, these are the ways that I will patiently try to restore you to relationship with me. And that would be the ending of the book. And yet here is chapter 27, and at first blush, it doesn't seem to fit. Why are we ending the book talking about vows that one might make to the Lord? But I think, as we dive deeper, we will see that indeed this is exactly as the book should end. Not only because it's how the book actually ends, but because of how it makes sense in the flow of the book itself. This chapter is all about devotion. And devotion is something that we know a little bit about in our day and age, certainly. But I think there's at least three sort of questions or ways to look at devotion. We could look at devotion towards the wrong thing or the wrong person. And scripture certainly talks about that. So let's say you're a devoted fan of the Toronto Maple Leafs. Amen. Some Perhaps even a majority of those gathered here this morning would question the object of your devotion since they have let you down since 1967. But the question here in chapter 27 is not an improper object for our devotion. And then we might talk about devotion to say, why are you not devoted enough. And certainly scripture also talks about that. What happened to proper devotion, especially proper devotion to a proper object, which is God? Perhaps your devotion has waned, has lessened over time. And scripture certainly calls us to that devotion. We perhaps understand this in a marriage relationship. We started out our marriages devoted to our spouse. We were marking down the days for our wedding day, counting them down now because of technology to the second. We had a countdown going. We couldn't wait. We stood on a stage such as this or in some other context in front of people and we made vows, very serious vows, to this individual. 
And we couldn't imagine that we could love them anymore. And yet we may feel over time that perhaps that devotion has waned. And similarly in our relationship with God, that God rescued us from our sin. And at that moment, we couldn't believe how much we felt his love and we would just give anything for him. And the question would be, has that lessened over time or increased? But that is also not the question that is before us this morning, although that will come out. The question before us this morning in this chapter is, what do you do with devotion that is directed towards a proper object, in this case God, that is so overwhelming because of all that he has done for you? The pagan deities demanded sacrifice, often human sacrifice. The pagan deities demanded any number of things. And so what is before us here as we look at devotion from Leviticus chapter 27 is, based on all that God has done for his people, bringing them out of slavery, bringing them through the wilderness with miracle upon miracle, and promising for them and making good on the promise of a land flowing with milk and honey. In light of all of that, what is the proper way to present to God the assumed devotion that will be present? Which I think is an even greater question before us this morning. So hopefully you're there in Leviticus chapter 27. I'm going to read starting at verse 30 through the end of the chapter, Leviticus 27, starting to read at verse 30 and reading through the end of the chapter. Every tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. If a man wishes to redeem some of his tithe, he shall add a fifth to it. Every tithe of herds and flocks, every tenth animal of all that pass under the herdsman's staff shall be holy to the Lord. One shall not differentiate between good or bad, neither shall he make a substitute for it, and if he does substitute for it, then both it and the substitute shall be holy, it shall not be redeemed. These are the commandments the Lord commanded Moses for the people of Israel on Mount Sinai. This is the word of God. And so as we walk through the contents of Leviticus chapter 27, we see in the first place that devotion to God is assumed. It's assumed that based on all that God has done for his people, they are going to be devoted to him. And so what form should that devotion take so that it is appropriate that it is not underdone or overdone. That they do not follow in the ways of the pagan nations that they are going to be rubbing shoulders with in a few short years. Nor that they forget the God that brought them with a mighty hand out of the nation of Egypt. Assuming devotion, what does that look like then in the context of worshiping the one true God? And so in the first place, we see that the book is actually bookended with devotion. 
There's a theme here that runs through the whole book of Leviticus. As we've mentioned, this answers the question, how can a holy God dwell in the midst of an unholy people? Or perhaps, the other way, how does an unholy people worship a holy God who dwells in their midst? And if you remember, all the way back to January, we started with five offerings. But the fourth and the fifth that are described for us are the required offerings for sin, the sin offering and the guilt offering. The first three are offerings offered to God out of devotion to Him. They are, in a sense, sometimes spontaneous offerings or offerings that come as a result of gratitude to God. The first offering, chapter 1, was the burnt offering. The only offering that is entirely consumed, the entire offering is given to God, symbolizing the entire person being given to God. These offerings were offered by the priests in the morning and in the evening, but individual Israelites could also offer these offerings, not required offerings, but offerings springing from devotion to God, in which neither they nor the priest benefited from the offering. But the whole offering was offered to God as the whole person was being offered to God, symbolically. We have the grain offering, the offering coming out of the harvest and thanksgiving to God. And then the peace offering or the fellowship offering, where the community was invited in to share in these offerings. Interestingly then, the first three sacrifices mentioned for us in Leviticus as we opened the book are voluntary offerings. The book opens with the assumption that the nation of Israel will worship God. That based on the overwhelming grace and mercy and love of God, they will desire to show their gratitude and their devotion and their worship to Him. And God walks through instructions on how to do that, and He does the same thing here as He closes the book, as Moses closes this book. What a beautiful book ending here in the book of Leviticus, based on the assumption that we will worship God. The first 25 verses then of chapter 27 regulate devotion. It talks about what happens if a person wants to devote themselves to God. What does that look like? And what is given is some valuation, not of the inherent worth of anyone, but of the manual labor that an individual could perform as it relates to the tabernacle complex. They could not be a Levitical priest unless they were a Levite, and they could certainly not be an Aaronic priest unless they were of the family of Aaron, but they could help with the taking down and the reassembling of the tabernacle tent. They could help in other ways by devoting themselves wholly to God. And so this valuation of persons has nothing to do with their inherent worth or value, but simply to say that the manual labor that they can provide, this is what it's valued at. And the valuation is rather high. It's believed in this time period a shekel was earned every month. And so to value someone at 50 shekels is basically four years worth of wages for a laborer. It's a high valuation. But if somebody wanted, whether through a Nazarite vow or another type of vow, to vow themselves to God, this is what that would look like. And the valuation is a redemption price. So that if they were not able to give themselves wholly for the full amount of time, this is what they would give to the Lord 
as a show of their devotion to him. Vows of animals, vows of houses, and values of land as we go through the first 25 verses. And each one of these then, God sets a price, so to speak, on it that shows that devotion costs something, but also to put a cap on it so as mentioned before, people wouldn't be run away with emotion and go above and beyond what is appropriate. The grace and the mercy of God, even in those expressing devotion to him. Notice verse 8, if you would. It's kind of tucked away in there and could be missed. Verse 8 says, And if someone is too poor to pay the valuation... Then he shall be made to stand before the priest, and the priest shall value him. The priest shall value him according to what the vower can afford. All are invited to devote themselves to God. Devotion to God is not just for the rich. Devotion to God is not just for those with means. Because as the children sang, and as we know to be true, none of us have anything to offer God. All of us come with nothing truly in our hands. Because there's nothing God needs. And so this wasn't just, if you had a lot of means, you could lavishly show your affection for God, perhaps even in a public way, as the Pharisees loved to do in Jesus' day. No, all are invited to devote themselves wholly and wholly to God. Anyone who has experienced the grace and mercy of God, anyone who has felt the depth of of their sin and rejection and rebellion and has been and continues to be overwhelmed with God's amazing grace and mercy and love to them can devote themselves to God. Money is not the reality. Money is not the, the primary means to show devotion. It is a heart that has been overwhelmed by all that God is. But also, the first 25 verses in this passion, passage are a caution against a rash commitment to devotion. The comedian Jerry Seinfeld has a bit where he talks about what happens to us when we go out to a restaurant to eat. Particularly if we've waited a while to eat, we're extremely hungry. Oh, I'm so hungry. I can eat a horse, I can eat an elephant. Oh, when's the food getting here? We ordered it at least two minutes ago. I'm so hungry. I'd pay anything for this meal. The meal comes, we enjoy it, maybe unbuckled our belts a little bit, we're stuffed, we couldn't eat another bite. That's when the check comes. Whoa, who had all this? I'm full, I don't need any food now, I gotta pay this? How many times has it been in our lives where we are desperate and we've cried out to God, God, save me from this usual, usually mess I have made. If you'd only get me out of this, God, if you'd only save me, primarily from the mistakes that I have made, just get me out of this scrape, God, I'll do anything. I'll go back to church. I'll, I'll, read, I'll read the Bible. I'll love you and serve you, God. I'll devote myself to you. What happens the moment the situation changes for the better. We forget. Because devotion to God is not dependent upon circumstances. 
Devotion to God is a lifestyle. It is the result of a changed and transformed heart. It is not dependent on our circumstances and our situation, which can be good or bad. Call to mind, if you would, the passage that was read for our call to confession this morning, Ecclesiastes 5, 1 through 7. It is better not to vow at all than to vow and not make good on the vow. And so this is also a caution that we may have an emotional experience with God. We may go to a, a meeting of some kind or we may be overwhelmed in some way emotionally with what God has done. We make all kinds of wild promises to God. Perhaps even knowing in the back of our minds we cannot keep these. And of course, once the emotions sort of drain away, we quickly forget the devotion that we have given because it's not legitimate, genuine devotion. And so God cautions his people under the assumption that they will be devoted to him. Devotion to God is assumed. And now we go through verses 26 through 34. Devotion to God must be genuine. There are three circumstances where God cautions his people that you can't double dip. You can't give something to God that's already his and count it as an extra offering. We see this throughout Scripture and certainly in the New Testament with Ananias and Sapphira. They looked around and some people were giving large sums, and in some cases, all the proceeds of a sale. Barnabas's case certainly was the reality. And so they sell some land, and they say they've given it all to God, because what they want is they want people to think that they're devoted to God, but they're not actually fully devoted to God. And so God cautions in verses 26 through 34, three ways in which our devotion to God is shown to be less than genuine. We attempt to use things that are already devoted to him in order to show the devotion that doesn't actually exist. In the first place, there must be a recognition of God's redemption. The firstborn of all animals already belong to God. This goes back to the time of the Passover. And God institutes this reality. Firstborn of animals, firstborn of families are dedicated to God. Dedicated to God already because the firstborn was saved during the Passover when God brought them out of Egypt. Saved for those that had the blood on the door, not saved for those who didn't. And so in perpetuity for the rest of the Israelites' time, God says the firstborn is dedicated to me already as a reminder of my saving you and your firstborn during the Passover as I brought you out of Egypt. As they celebrated the Passover meal and as any firstborn child was born, it was dedicated to the Lord already. In recognition of the redemption of God. We know this from the Christmas story or the events shortly after the Christmas story where Jesus is taken to the temple by Mary and Joseph and a price is paid, there's an offering made. He's dedicated to the Lord because he's the firstborn of his family. What God is saying in this passage 
You can't take something that's already supposed to be mine and pretend like you're giving it to me out of extra devotion. No, the firstborn's already mine because of my redemption of you. This is a baseline reality in your lives. There must be a recognition then in the second place of God's holiness. No devoted thing that a man devotes to the Lord, and verse 29, no one devoted who is devoted for destruction for mankind shall be ransomed. He shall surely be put to death. Especially in times of war, God would say that certain things were already devoted to him. Depended on the battle, depended on the instruction from the Lord. We all remember the battle of Jericho. God says, the spoils of war are dedicated to me. And what does Achan do? He takes some devoted things and keeps them for himself. Now in that scenario, if Achan had taken those devoted things and then gone up to the tabernacle and say, I'm offering out of the goodness of my heart, out of devotion to God, out of gratitude for his grace, this gold and this silver and this piece of clothing, because I just love God so much, God says that's illegitimate devotion. It's not actually devotion to him, because you're using things that are devoted to him already, and pretending like you are devoting to him to him as an extra form of devotion. In the third place, recognition then of God's provision. Going all the way back to their father, Abraham, who gave tithes to Melchizedek, which we'll get into next year as we go through the book of Hebrews. A tenth of everything that they owned was already God's. A tenth of their herds and flocks each spring as lambing season happened or whatever animals that they had. They would go through the line of the lambs as they came and every tenth was devoted to God. One tenth of everything that they owned was already God's. And they couldn't sort of try to make it better for themselves. So they get all the lambs lined up and then they take the ones that are sickly and ill and lame and blind and they make them the every tenth one so then it looks like I'm tithing to God but I'm giving him all the ones that I'd probably have to get rid of anyway. God says very clearly you can't do that. If you try to substitute a bad animal for a good one, both then need to be offered to God. And so, to take the 10% that is, that is supposed to be God's anyway and act as if that is an act of devotion to God is illegitimate. It's not an expression of a true heart of worship and devotion to God, a life transformed by the grace of God. It is simply a duty and oftentimes one that is viewed as oppressive. Paul will say in the New Testament, God loves a cheerful giver. And so what we see from all of this is that devotion to God is a grateful sacrifice. If our devotion to God does not cost us anything, we need to question whether it is in fact devotion. The assumption is, because God has given everything to us, and God owns us twice if we are his through Christ, because he gave us life that we are to be grateful for to him. And then in Christ, he has given us eternal life. If we've been born again, God owns us twice. We owe him, in a sense, twice for what he has done for us. We're going to look in just a moment as we close at just a little glimpse of all the things that God has done for us. 
through Christ by the Spirit. And so it's assumed a devotion will naturally flow out of that. And these instructions are to right-size that devotion. What does that devotion look like? It looks something like this. And yet, as mentioned off the top, that second question about devotion is a legitimate one to ask. Based on all that God has done for us, and this time of year as we celebrate the beauty of the incarnation of God the Son, God the Father loved us so much that he sent God the Son who left all of the glories of heaven to be born as one of us. Eternal, omniscient, omnipotent God as a baby. And God the Father loved us so much and God the Son loved us so much and God the Holy Spirit loved us so much that to this day as we are sitting here this morning, God the Son is still one of us. He did not become human for a short period of time. He became human from the moment of his incarnation for all the rest of eternity because of his heart of love for us. See, everything else out there is us going up. Every other ideology, every other religion, every other thought is we're down here, but if we work hard, if we do the right things, if we say the right words in the right order and we give enough money, we can go up. And that is a lie. The truth is so beautiful, God came down. We can't go up. We try. In just a few weeks, it'll be New Year's. We all try to make these resolutions. But we don't keep. We try. But even if we may better ourselves in some small way, we cannot make ourselves perfect. So God came down. And the assumption is, if we are gripped by that, if that is real in our lives, devotion is a reasonable, natural, supernatural response to the grace and mercy of God. It's only natural to assume that we would believe everything is God's. That we would hold very loosely the things of this life. And that we would invest very heavily in the life to come. It's assumed. And yet the question remains, would we know that? Someone said, I'm, I'm devoted to my wife and my family. I'm a devoted husband and father. And that's great. When you see them. Not much. I work 60, 80 hours a week if I can, more if they'll let me. I travel a lot. I don't really spend a lot of time with my family. Really? Yeah, I even forget a couple of my kids' names. Don't tell them. <laughs> really? But you're devoted. Yeah, I'm devoted. <laughs> it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, and it doesn't make a whole lot of sense in a Christian context either. All that God has done for us, all that he means to us. And devotion, true devotion, can be lacking. And so as we close, 
There's devotion to God through Christ by the Spirit. What does Leviticus 27 mean to us then today? What is the point of this chapter? I think, again, devotion to God is assumed. Revelation 12, 1 and 2. Paul says, offer yourselves as living sacrifices to God. It's all his anyway. It's all from him. The health to earn what you have earned, the health to do what you have done, the life that has been given to you and the new life that has been given to you in Christ, all the beauties of salvation that we're going to unpack in the Sunday school class on how can I have a relationship with God starting in January, all this and so much more has been given to us by God the Father through Christ by the Spirit. And so Paul, what does Paul say? Offer yourselves a living sacrifice to God, which is what? Your reasonable service, a reasonable act of worship. That just makes sense, right? If you stood on a stage and said, I vow to this person that I will love you and, and hold you and you only above all others till death parts us. Hun, can you do the dishes tonight? Not my thing. It's just assumed. It's assumed. Because of all that God has done for us, that our lives would be devoted to him. Devotion recognizes God's redemption. We're going to turn to a few passages this morning. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7. Ephesians 1 and verse 7. A life of devotion to God recognizes his redemption of us. It's assumed because of all that he has done for us. It recognizes his redemption of us. Ephesians 1.7 In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. A few Sundays back, Scott Campbell closed with an illustration trying to recount how many acts of sin, perhaps, that were a part of his account of sin. And it was... Sort of the numbers were crunched, one sin in the morning and one sin in the afternoon, evening. I would submit to you, I don't, I don't presume to speak on behalf of Scott, but uh, my sin ledger is much greater than that. And what has God done? He's forgiven us according to the riches of his grace. Devotion recognizes God's holiness. Romans chapter 3, 23 to 26. Turn there if you would. Romans 23, 3, sorry, 23 to 26. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift to the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God does not ignore sin. He's not indifferent to our sin and rebellion. And so true devotion to him recognizes his holiness. Subtly, if we're not careful over time, we can believe that God's redemption of us is somehow deserved. 
that God got a good deal when he got us as a son or daughter. And it ought to ever be present in our minds. The holiness of God is such that we could never, ever match up. Thanks be to him for his grace. Notice his provision, Romans chapter 8, 29 to 39. Romans 8, 29 to 39. Romans chapter 8, starting to read verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order they might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised, who is the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that's not even a full list of all that we have in Christ because of the love of the Father through the Spirit. All of these things God has given us. And it's why we make Christmas a big deal. Because that's where that starts. And yet, is our devotion assumed? Is it costly? Because devotion to God is a grateful sacrifice. It is a sacrifice. David is told by God to sacrifice as the death angel hangs over his nation. Not his nation, God's nation, but the nation he's king over. And he can see the death angel who has been subjecting the nation to a plague because of David's sin. And David asks the homeowner if he can sacrifice to God on his land so that the death angel will permanently stay his hand. And the individual says to David, take whatever you need. Take these two oxen, take the yoke for the wood, take anything you need for the sacrifice. And what does David say to that individual? I will not sacrifice something that cost me nothing. If you don't notice your devotion to God... And if nobody else does, you have to question whether or not it's a sacrifice. Because God has sacrificed more than we could possibly imagine for us. But notice it's not just a sacrifice. Devotion to God is a grateful sacrifice. The tenure of Leviticus 27 is, I love God so much, how can I do more? as we come into and go through this Christmas season, is that our heart? Is our heart 
full of gratitude for all that God has done? Is it overwhelmed with the mercy and grace of God for us? And is our heart attitude, I'm doing all that I can for God, how can I do more? I can't repay him. But I just love him so much because he loves me so much. There's nothing he can ask of me that is too great because of all the great things that he has sacrificed for me. I pray that that is our heart this morning as I close in prayer. Father, we come before you this morning and we are aware that oftentimes our hearts are cold. They are not as devoted to you as they ought to be. Father, perhaps it has been a while since we entered into relationship with you, or better, you entered into relationship with us. Perhaps what is needed is to recall and reflect who we were before you met us and who we are now and who we have become in you since that time. Father, perhaps we feel we are devoted to you this morning. But our devotion to you doesn't really cost us, at least not so much that we notice. Perhaps our devotion to you does not involve actual genuine sacrifice. And maybe what is required and what is necessary this morning is for us to evaluate our relationship with you And to ask ourselves the ways in which we are sacrificing for you so that others can know you because of your sacrifice for us, because of others' sacrifice for us to tell us about the good news. Father, maybe we are weary in sacrifice. And while sacrifice is costly, perhaps, Father, we need to re-examine our motivations for service. That we are spending ourselves and being spent out of devotion for you, but in actuality it's devotion for others and devotion to be seen by others. Father, thank you for the book of Leviticus and thank you for this chapter that right-sizes and regulates and cautions and helps us as our hearts are overwhelmed with all of your grace and mercy that we would devote ourselves to you truly, not just in a, a flurry of an emotional high, but every day in ways that are sacrificial, but in ways that we are grateful to sacrifice for. And Father, perhaps there are some here this morning or watching online 
for which this all seems too much, maybe even ridiculous. Father, may they be overwhelmed even in this hour with your grace and mercy for them. May they understand their sinfulness and may they bend their knees and bow their hearts in submission before you, the only one who can save, who can rescue, who can redeem. And we pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.